All right, guys. My name is Andrew Major from Spotify. I'm moderating the panel on APIs today. Um, we've got five awesome guests. Uh, we'll go down the line and introduce ourselves. Hello, everybody. Uh, I'm Neil from uh, EMI Music. And the reason I'm here is because uh, we recently launched a, an API, very recently, last November. And um, yeah, it's pretty interesting space and very interesting to be a major in this space. Hi everybody, I'm Ty Roberts. I'm the CTO, co-founder of Gracenote. Gracenote has web services and data um, that small developers use up to very large developers like Apple. And so I'm here to talk about APIs and data and all the fun things you guys can do with them. Hi, I'm Neil Mansilla with a company called Mashery and we manage APIs for companies. So um, in the media space we manage APIs for New York Times, USA Today, Associated Press and The Guardian. And uh, in the video space, Rotten Tomatoes and Netflix. In the music space, we manage the APIs for audio, eMusic, Rovi, and Jambase. Hi, my name's Raheem. I'm a product manager at Rovi. Uh, we do metadata around media, so music, movies, television. Um, some of our big customers are like Spotify, um, Cox on TV, and um, yeah, I'm going to also talk with uh, Ty on big data and media. Hello, my name is Chad Taylor, uh, co-founder and head of product at Thrillcall. We do live music event listings. So we take APIs from nearly all the major ticketers and the secondary market, and then we republish about a third of that. So very data-centric. Thanks, guys. Uh, we were just chatting uh, in the green room upstairs, and one of the like big topics that came up was data. A lot of our companies have tons of data. Um, and I'm really interested in Gracenote, actually. Um, Ty, can you talk about like how Gracenote's evolved over the years? Um, well, Gracenote started out as a small company. I started with a other co-founder, uh, literally in our garage, and uh, we're a little bit bigger than that now. Um, we're really lucky to start at the very beginning with a CD database. I think people know what that is, where you put the CD in the computer and the song names came back. And uh, luckily for us, about the time we started that company, this guy called up and licensed our service, and his application was called SoundJam and SoundJam MP actually, and his name was Jeff Robbins, and that turned out to be iTunes. So uh, small guys can become successful. <laughs> he sold his application to Apple, and now he, I think he runs all consumer products for Apple. Um, so our database started with users putting information in, but then we started having editorial people add more and more information. The database grew from, it's like 100 million tracks of music information globally and 100 languages. Um, we also have video and television information now, but it's like, uh, one of the largest databases in the world. I guess what we're talking big data. Yeah, yeah, we're big. We're big data. We're big friendly data, though. Big friendly. friendly. <laughs> and then, what kind of data does Rovi have? It's like a lot of metadata about artists. Yeah, so we we have a similar uh, data set. We manage information about artists, um, artist information, so editorial reviews on albums and artists themselves. Uh, we do movies, uh, some information like everything from when the movie was made to genres and mood information about the movies. Uh, television shows, so like when a TV show is going to show up in a certain area. Um, have information on games and books as well, though that's not exposed through our API yet. Uh, yeah. Cool. And then another thing that came out recently is uh, Open EMI. So um, Neil, do you want to tell us about that? Yeah. Um, 
so yeah, as I say, wor working for a music label, um, APIs is, is a new space for us. And what we've tried to do with OpenEMI is to create APIs so that uh, developers, uh, typically small-scale developers, can, can get access to EMI's content. So we partnered with the Echo Nest, um, which I'm sure many of you guys are aware of. And we launched last November with, we've put about 20,000 tracks in there, and it goes beyond tracks. It's, um, there's some video, there's metadata, there's uh, images and press releases, kind of promotional material too. Um, and the, the whole point of it is to make it easier for, for small startups and small developers to, to get at that content. But not only that, we've kind of, we, we've expanded it a little bit and said, okay, get the content, but to go beyond that and say, we'll, we'll help you bring your apps to market. So what that means is we'll help clear licensing uh, for the content you want to use, including clearing the publishing, and we'll also help with the marketing. Um, because because we, we spoke to developers and we found that those were two key areas where they, they struggled traditionally. So so that's what we're going to try and do with the OpenEMI program, is help people to do that. How did that start? Like, How did OpenEMI come about? Uh, literally chatting to developers. So probably me, them, last year, we, me and a colleague were, were down there and we, we spoke to a few guys. Um, and we realized that there was some great apps out there, um, but there was a, a lot of um, misunderstanding and, and cloudiness around the whole area of uh, licensing. So developers could put great apps together, but then when they came to try and get them to market, they kind of realized how difficult it was to um, you know, clear licensing with multiple publishers, with multiple record labels, and when they're trying to do that globally, they, they realized that you know, unless you've got someone in there doing that job, then specifically doing that job, then it's a tough ask for a developer to do that. Um, so we, we got um, we actually did a couple of roundtables and we got some small startups in. We got some some guys that had been through it before, people like Seven Digital and uh, We Seven and OD Two. And we all sat around a table and said, "Look, what are the issues that is preventing innovation in the tech space in music?" And and those were the things that came back. It's one is access to labels and access to the content that labels have. Two is licensing and three is marketing. So that's why we we specifically put the program together to to hit all of those things. Cool. Um, bringing it back to like data, how do you guys think all this big data really affects the end user, the music listener? Um, my, my, my comment on that, it, the experience has changed. It used to be that since you were in a world where you wanted to buy tracks, you had to find the tracks. So basically the information was about how can I help somebody find something they already kind of know that they want. But that's totally changed now that these music services have millions of tracks available for streaming because now you don't choose what you want, you choose kind of an experience that thing has to generate playlists and it has to help you get automatically to what you want. And so the the data, the factual data, while it's still an important foundational level you have to have and both our companies have this, the next level of data is the experiential data, the mood information, the information about what artists influence other artists, what things, how things fit together, which really go to recommendation and playlisting, and that's the, the new frontier. So that's that's really where the action is these days. Yeah, the most exciting thing about um, like APIs in general, I think, is like real time data. We chat a little bit about that, especially Chad. Um, like, what do you guys think? Of, how do you guys deal with real time data? Because your data is like up to the second. Right. So I, I think at Thrill Call and event uh, event data, we um, we have a unique kind of problem where like just having a, an API that delivers data and where it's not uh, if it's not fresh for an hour or 15 minutes, that could be okay. But where um, things change, artists get added, um, ticket listings get added, quantity available now with our transactional API um, changes, then you have to have it updated in real time essentially. So um, we've done a lot of work with our 
our mobile app that's launching at NoisePop this year um, and has a transactional component where you can buy tickets um, right in the app that um, you know the, the paradigm of the web and APIs in general for RESTful implementations isn't really what I'm seeing in the mobile space because that stuff is a lot is really chatty and um, the information that you give back to the mobile clients is um, too much information, so you have to filter it out. So there's you'll you'll be seeing I think this year with more the transactional uh, mobile clients coming on board that um, there'll be a, a kind of a shift in how people are thinking about delivering APIs specifically to mobile, and that the real time stuff is essentially um, becomes critical when you're doing that. Also, like location data, um, what kind of what kinds of things? We were talking a little bit, uh, Ty, about you know what kind of interesting stuff can you draw from listening data based on location? Well, a few years ago, we saw there was a lot of Van Halen being played in the Vatican, um, <laughs> which I thought was interesting. Um, but other than that, uh, what I would say is that that that. Uh, real-time information is critical. In fact, what he was saying about the mobile applications, like when you're on Spotify and you're playing something on Facebook, it's like you are playing this now. Okay, now it's not really now. It might be like four seconds ago now, but it has to be that fast. And so what people want to know is what, what are people doing and where are they doing it and what are they doing right now? And the whole cultures change this. That's why I can look out there and see like at least half of you guys are on your phones right now. You got to know like what the guy in front of you is doing in the next row. So it is the location information and the real-time information changing the whole application experience. It's like, what are you doing when? How do I know what's up? And if I'm not on top of what's happening right now, then I'm not really with it. The, um, it's the, I guess the AP, like, uh, I guess this goes to Andrew. When guys are listening to Spotify or Ian, when guys are listening to RDO, uh, you guys have that information on those mobile clients about where they are and really who they are if they off their Facebook. And you know, Rovi or or Graystone for that matter doesn't have that data. So, Andrew, how are how is Spotify able to use this not just legally but even feature-wise? Yeah, I think one thing um, our art we have an artist relations team, and I think one thing they're working on is, you know, trying to help artists figure out the best place to do concerts. Mm -hmm. So, if everyone's listening to Katy Perry in North Dakota, she should probably go there. You know. <laughs> <laughs> but, I've often wanted a feature where you could, you know, kind of see, peer inside, and see what kind of music people are listening to in there, because music's such an indicator of whether or not you fit socially or you're interested in the people that are in there. And so that kind of real-time information, you know, it'd be like kind of like look ahead into the club or look ahead in the room and see what people are listening to in there. That turns out it's extremely valuable for all these social networking applications. And music's definitely the connector, the easiest connector for people to connect with, even if they don't speak the same language. So, I think the stuff that you guys have and the other services have is just invaluable if they can figure out how to leverage it properly. So I want to kind of get a feel of who's in the room. How many of you guys are like uh, developers? Okay, nice. a lot. Um, how many are just like business people that are just want to learn about APIs? Okay, how about business people that might want to start an API? Like you work at a company that has awesome data, you want to build an API. Okay, so one, one guy on this panel, uh, Neil, Neil Mansilla, he works at Mashery, and one question we thought would be awesome for him to answer is, like, how do you go about starting an API? Sure. So, if you know, a lot of our clients have existing APIs that are just consumed internally, right? So, like Best Buy, the retail client of ours, their all their API consumption was done internally, but they wanted to open up to partners, and that opens up a whole new can of worms when it comes to rate limiting, throttling analytics. Um, access control, the very big thing in the enterprise space. 
and so we provide that for them. And so one of the interesting topics that we talked about in the green room, I'm just going to segue into it now, is uh, the fact that, so Mashery, I'm not plugging it, but we're, we're a multi-tenant SaaS, which means all API calls from Clout, I see um, Clout back there, or RDO, they all go through the same pipe. And one of the big questions these guys are asking me, back to the big data thing, is, well, can't you consolidate all the information and get like really cool things about what they're reading in the New York Times and what they're listening to? No, we, we don't do that type of stuff. But um, if you have an API, um, of course, you know, talk to an API management provider. Don't think about just rolling your own. It's a good idea. So for, you know, I, it, again, in our talks, I heard you know, Neil from EMI talking about developer outreach, and that's part of our, our holistic offering. You know, 150,000 developers building like 40,000 apps around the world. And that's, and it's an important thing you're going to run into. It's like, how do I get people to consume my stuff? Yeah, so, developer marketing is so important. Yeah, and, and that's the thing is that developers don't say that you can't market to them, but essentially, you know, the resources are there. So how do you get that in front of them? And so I guess I, I guess redirect that to any of any of you guys that supply those things. I mean, I know what we do as a company to try to help our our clients, but like, Ro, you know, what does Rovi do? Yeah. So um, as far as developer outreach is going, we've been doing a lot of hackathons recently. Have any of you guys been to a hackathon like Music Hack Day that just happened this weekend? Or yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I mean, that's that's kind of what's been working for a lot of companies uh, in the past. But personally, I feel like 2012, 2013 is going to be the year where hackathons become mainstream and also kind of developers become fatigued by the idea of a hackathon. It's happens all the time, it's not that fun, I don't really want to go to them anymore. So I think there's a lot of challenges around developer marketing on what's next after the hackathon, after um, after this just doesn't, the return on the investment on sponsorships and attendance is just not there anymore. And What about just having the developers that don't understand all the resources that are offered, right? I mean, even for your API, which I think you guys consume mostly internally, or for Gracenotes, you guys have a ton of data, right? Yeah. I mean, how do you get how do you even expose that information so that people realize everything you offer? Um, it's a it, first of all for them to go through everything we offer. It's a lot to learn about. Yeah. Usually, hopefully, they're in a specific silo, like they're in music or they're in video. If they have to do everything, it's a lot to learn. Um, we send our developer. Well, one of our developers, Oscar, he's in the back here. He's fatigued from the hackathon. He was there, uh, and uh, so we send our guys out to the hackathons, and then they buy demonstrating stuff that we do. That's one way to communicate to the developer community. Yeah. Um, otherwise, you have to have a ton of documentation. You have to have example applications. You have to run seminars and training things. We do auto events in Germany with auto companies. Yeah. You know, that's what you have to do. You just have to get out in the field and meet the people. The only way can do it. So just to bring it back to your question, Andrew, about what people need to think about when they have an API, on the technical side of thing, like the ops, you know, the operations, the analytics and all that stuff, I mean, go find a specialist that does that type of thing. You know, there's, we have competitors in our space and we consider ourselves the best, but it's, it's beyond that about having a success, successful API program, right? It's, it's more than just if you build it, they will come. You really have to let developers know what the hell you have. The, the most important piece of information is just watching to see if they use it. Because we have tons of guys who are very excited. They come to the meeting. They have resources. They get the API. And then we watch. Like there's this. And like after about a month, we're like yep. zero activity. Like yep. what's going on? And it turned out, oh well, the guy quit. And so then you have to call him back up and kind of. So that usage information is critical. And if you see somebody who's just running off the charts of the service, well, they must either have a success or they have a bug. Yeah. One of the two. We call it developer community health. So we have like, you know, analytics just around that and like, you know, where do people drop off? 
Right? Did they get a key and they just kind of disappear? Right. Are they using this? Damn hundred million queries from one IP address. Then you kind of yeah. That's a bug. Yeah. Like, how do you measure if your developer marketing is successful? Is it like number of apps created or? Yeah. So we, we look at all of those things. You mm -hmm. know, on a on an aggregate basis. You know, we do this. We manage this uh, APIs for over one hundred and fifty companies around the world, not just entertainment, but even enterprise. I mean, developers are developers, right? Mm -hmm. And so, um, yeah, we take a look at every aspect of the you know the whole timeline when they sign up what are they doing with it are they doing anything with it do they drop off right and you'll as an api provider you're going to face the same challenges and you need to monitor that stuff really closely cool um one question i thought of um back to like data and metadata do you guys think that like the artists like we're just a bunch of nerds managing all this data <laughs> do you think like the artists should control and manage their metadata some artists do manage their metadata. We've had calls from artists in their hotel rooms in Paris or something calling up saying, hey, I've got this thing and it's wrong. And so we had a guy, a lady come up here to ask you to change something just a minute ago. <laughs> <laughs> so reality is they do see it because it's everywhere. And what I would say is it's critically important that you do know your metadata and you do understand it because that's the digital representation of you uh, until they meet you or see you actually perform. And so I think we'll realize like, you know, if you, don't fill in the year of release of your recording like in the playlisting algorithms when people select I want something from the 90s it will not select you the year zero does not get selected when you select 90s so the reality is is that that information has got to be in there and we get tools to people we help people we have a person full-time people that basically handle customer service requests from artists but they've got to they've got to at least look at it or understand it a little bit or somebody that works for them does and I guess just to play devil's advocate like Artists should manage their metadata to some extent, right? Um, we all have processes in place on if you need to get your album image updated or your artist photo updated, but um, like they obviously shouldn't be control of their editorial reviews or anything like that because you want to have some type of third yeah, party. Yeah, have that. Yeah, yeah. That, that's just the place that's advocate. Is, they should not extent. be setting their own star rating. <laughs> right. Yeah. This recording is just as good as the last one, and that next right. one is even better. The best album ever. But yeah. Right, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So there definitely is a editorial, uh, you know, the right to have an editorial opinion is important to right. reflect in the data. In, a, in my uh, business, we have some interesting problems because you can imagine with event data, um, there are people out there that are selling tickets on the secondary market and for SEO purposes or whatever you want to get that. Um, the sooner you get it out there that you announce an event, the better it is because the more uh, people will likely come to you for tickets. So, um, you know, you can almost pick now, like the, the Chili Peppers are playing here and they have a, a date open the next night and the, the tour has been selling really well that um, they might be there the next night. So people will try to game the system. It just kind of makes my life harder because we'll get that information from these guys and we have to parse it out and realize that it's not real and can't publish it yet. So there's a couple of, uh, couple of angles there that we have to deal with. Cool. How do you guys uh, like sell your API? Like, how do you convince a developer to spend time and sometimes money on your API? Yeah, I'll start. Um, well, for us, it's 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 not a case. Well, it is a case of convincing them to start, but but the payoff comes further downstream. So what we offer is a revenue share deal. So as as I mentioned earlier, where we see it as a partnership. So great developers got loads of tech and creative skills we've got some content and we also can navigate the music business um, we've also got quite a big marketing machine so if you put those things together um, hopefully there's a successful app at the end of that and that's that's where it comes in we hope that developers will, will see that will realize the opportunity and then we will share revenues with them 
on the back end. So there's a clear revenue split between ourselves and, and from that we pay out all the other rights holders and then the developer takes away uh, quite a big chunk of that for themselves. So, so that's, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to offer services that complement their own services in a partnership way and then kind of pay them out on the back as well. So we have a bunch of licensing models to support all the different businesses we're in. Um, everything from some people don't actually some people take our data package it with their data or their services and sell it to somebody else and so those guys are kind of like we call preferred partners and it's revenue share kind of business and then there's business where we actually have big flat fee licensing that's big successful companies that license millions and millions of queries and big server loads and then we have per device licensing some consumer electronics guys just want to pay one time for the life of the product so it has to work for seven years. They want a TV. They just want it in there to work, and they want to pay once. So we have to figure out what it's going to cost to run that thing, whatever it is in there, for seven years, and then try to add a little profit to it. And that sometimes we're hopefully right when we make those estimates or wrong. Actually, the guy who's responsible for some of those estimates right here. Um, <laughs> and the the reality of that is we have to make it work with their business model. Um, the hardest is small companies that want us to do something really unique and interesting, and where we have to do custom engineering. And we do do a few of these projects a year, but mostly we have a hard time doing that because we've got a lot of standardized products, and so if you need something new, but it, it's, that's why I come to this SF Music Tech. Every year, somebody comes up to me with a great idea that I haven't thought of, and, and so a few of those guys, some of which are in the back of the room I see over there, John Blaufarb and a few of those guys, uh, had really great ideas and came to us and we work with them. And so that's what I'm here for, is to look for the really exciting new stuff. But we don't do a lot of them. So at Mashery, we don't charge developers anything. I mean, our, we're partners with our clients, right? So Rovi, if you go to developer.rovicorp.com, that's, you know, they're just part of our SaaS stack. Uh, we do help our clients package their data in a way that they can build kind of, uh, if they needed to build like custom on the fly packages that are specialized, because that's becoming a lot more in higher demand. <laughs> so we're doing some of that stuff. And um, yeah, so I guess you could talk about what, how Rovi does it. So we actually follow a model that's pretty similar to Grace Notes, where we uh, there's a couple of different ways we can model it as a flat fee, we model it as usage-based. Uh, for developers using the API, we do it where it's free for non-commercial use. When you're ready to go commercial, uh, it's just conversation with salespeople, and the pricing can kind of vary depending on what data you're getting access to. So. Yeah, Thrill Call, our event information is free to use as a developer. Um, so if you have a site that has music-related content, you have artist or venue information, you want to have um, listings around there and kind of merchandise it, um, that's free to use. And uh, you know we, we get the benefit of having that person know the brand, come back to thrillcall.com, sign up for more of their artist alerts, and then we can email them, give them alerts on on-sale dates and things. So one other thing we chatted about, this is a little bit off topic of what we just spoke about, but um, you know, companies like RDO, Spotify, we offer um, stream, like actually the streaming music as part of our API, um, but companies like in the video space, like Netflix, don't offer that. Like why is music ahead of the curve? So I think I talked a little bit about that. One is copy protection and music kind of went away for the most part a few years ago. So, I mean, maybe you guys don't remember buying the DRM protected files on iTunes or on other services, but generally speaking, the music companies decided that that was a technological barrier that was causing more problems maybe than it was worth, and so they, they got rid of that for for most part. And the only restriction now on music is if you have a streaming service like Spotify and you have a giant cache 
of music files pre-downloaded on the hard drive, that has to have some kind of encryption on it. But other than that, you don't need to do too much. And that's not true in video. In video today, they still are very, very concerned about people recording their videos because there's a windowed release system for videos and they don't want you going to the hotel room upstairs and videotaping something and putting it up on the internet. Um, in fact, if you do that, you probably don't, may not know this, there's like a number in the actual video stream that can be decoded. If you record it even with a crappy cell phone camera, they can figure out who you are in that room six months later. And so the reality is that that is why that, that's one of the reasons why that isn't available. The protection scheme is still there. It's fairly technically complicated. It's very specific to the platform. And so it's not as easy just to let people plug these things into their apps. The exception is Flash, which made it very easy to put video in web pages and things like that. But it's, when you get outside of Flash, then you have some challenges. So at, um, at our company, it's, uh, we luckily don't face that problem because by the nature of events, everyone who puts an event up wants you know, real people to come to the event. So um, you know, we want to get it out there as, and we're encouraged to get it out there to as many people as possible, hence the free API. YouTube has some pretty interesting APIs that they're, they're putting out there that are HTML5 as well as you can embed video in your apps and you can even start at a certain point, play for seven seconds and end it, right? So I mean, there is some innovation in the video space. I, I was just, from a licensing standpoint, I thought it was kind of neat that these music companies, these music streaming services have APIs where you can just, you can, you know, bundle it in. They have SDKs for iOS, for Android, and just build it right in your app. And I was, that, that's just a completely different model than video has for commercial video. Yeah. What are the license? What are the licensing restrictions on using that type of stuff, Andrew? Um, for just basically, it's just non-commercial. Uh, if you want, just like what Raheem was saying, you know, if you want to do commercial stuff, talk to our business folks. But I mean, as long as you know, you, there's a there's an app called Spot On Radio, and it's just you connect your Spotify account and you can play anything. Yeah. So. Okay. Uh, we wanted we wanted to open up to you guys if you have questions. Um, about halfway through, so. <laughs> Uh, we're going to use the APIs from this side of the table. Uh, our biggest challenge is matching music across services uh, because people's metadata is very messy. Yep. Uh, and my biggest business challenge is getting access to universal metadata that's clean. Uh, from a developer standpoint, this is for Roe v and Gracenote. Uh, I've talked to both of you guys. I get weekly sales calls. Uh, I'm offered multi-year um, five-figure-plus contracts, which from a developer standpoint is not feasible, um, whereas I can get free music from Neil. Uh, can either of you guys give me a monthly contract month-to-month -month for under $1,000? And I'll go with you right now if you do. <laughs> I, I'm, 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 I'm absolutely serious. How am I supposed to get metadata as a developer, and why is the most commoditized content I need the most expensive? Uh, well, because it's Don't not, to be too it's not commoditized, that would be the first thing. <laughs> it's uh, it's actually really hard to make. You know, I, my company's 400 people, um, and they're all over the world, and they we spend a lot of time trying to clean this stuff up. And every time we clean it up, we have to keep cleaning it up because it keeps getting screwed up again. So the reality is, is that it's actually just it's hard to do. The contract size, well. I guess what I'd say about that is that something, you know, our guys are here, I, you know, I'd I just better say, let's talk about that. It just seems to me like you need the data and there are other companies that have access to the data, which are also small companies, so it must be possible somehow. So, you know, I don't know. Cobble it together 
yeah, it might be your use model. You know, like we look at how much how much is going to use. I mean, I know our, since our service is, we don't just usually sell the data. It's an online service, so it's going to be queried a lot. That costs more than like somebody doesn't use it very much. So I'd say come talk to me afterwards. I'm happy to. Right, answer. I would say the same thing because we've been working on getting more amenable pricing for people that are smaller developers because, yeah, thousand plus, you know, long contracts is just not possible for an iPhone developer, for example. So, uh, yeah, let's talk afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> right. one, one other thing, I mean, one thing that's worth mentioning also is that, I mean, one of the reasons I'm here at the show is we're collecting ideas for how to, how to create a sandbox for small developers that would allow them to experiment in the sandbox a lot easier. The problem is it won't have the same quality service as the stack of servers that, you know, Apple has or whatever, but the reality is that that might be okay. You might not care that much if it's, you know, the 11 nines of uptime that you need to have for make Apple happy. Uh, so what kind of uh, inconsistencies do you see across music services outside of metadata in terms of um, the APIs? Now, looking at things like file-based versus streaming-based services, where are the big commonalities, where are the big differences that you guys see across mostly music services? Um, there's no standard for playlisting. And there's no standard for selecting how to actually have a musical experience. Finding an individual track, it kind of can work, but I mean, he brought the problem, it's hard, there's no standard information across all the services, but like I said, experiential playlisting now, if you say play me music that's, you know, uh, uh, you know, basically uh, exciting, you know, it's jazz and I want it from the 60s, you know, how can I get that? And so every service is a different API for that. And then I think another area is the area of actually getting the factual information, the cover artwork and these kind of things. There's no standards for that stuff either. Um, size wise, graphics wise, it's, you know, it's different. The, the search, I mean, do you, do you use Spotify and RDO APIs and look in, have you tried out their methods for search? Okay, yeah, so they all have basic search capabilities, a search database, and they're fairly freaking accurate, right? Um, I, I, I have not used Graystone stuff, but I've, I've built some apps on Rovies, and I mean, it, you're not going to find all-in-one. You're not going to get the best album art from the RDO API, right? You're going to have to go out to different sources. But in terms of playback, I don't know, uh, maybe Andrew, you need to speak more closely on the, you know, on the file thing, you know, like, I know RDO has, like, music syncing, but I, I've only played with the streaming stuff. Can you talk about that, uh, his part of his question about the transfer mechanisms of streaming versus file-based? Well, um, with Spotify, you just, you know, you stream it with, through the iOS library or, you know, you stream directly in our client. We don't have, like, a web-based stream. Okay. Other questions? We've got a lot of people here. There must be some questions. Hey, Kerry Rose. I'm uh, curious if you see any initiatives along the standardization of metadata and other content, a la initiatives with DDEX or um, our friends over there at NARM and stuff like that. Do you see anything coming down the pipe and what we might see? There, there, is, there are many industry initiatives, and, always, and there always have been, and they've been effective in some ways. Um, they've been effective in getting music information to digital retailers, I think, and, and to some degree. But the problem is, is that when I talk about this experiential stuff, the subjective labeling, that stuff is kind of like editorial. It's not coming from, from, uh, from the record company. You know, they're not saying the mood of our music is such and such, or the mood of this track is such and such. So because of that, that stuff is a stuff where there's not really likely to be a standard, a subjective. 
Um, just like maybe you know, Rovi has great reviews, but their authors write the reviews. It's not like a standard template. Reviews are actually, some are very long and very interesting and some are short, but the reality is that's because it's done by people and you know, there's not an automated way to do that. So I do think that the standards can only go so far. After that, it's handwork. That's a somewhat related uh, standards question. Are you aware of any initiatives from the content producers for things like packaging that semantic meta information in MPEG-7 or uh, any sort of larger agreed upon by common standards um, format for attaching uh, sort of semantic meta information? So you said mood and so on and so forth, uh, but from the source? I worked very hard in this for a number of years. I got to tell you, I think that it's been a massive failure of the music business not to actually create a advanced metadata container that not only describes that kind of stuff, but describes the packaging, how the photographs fit together. We need an actual digital package. And in fact, the music industry is probably going to end up using the pa package that book guys are putting together because we couldn't get our act together to do our own. So I mean, the ID3 tag is not a package. The ID3 tag is a little piece of information in the file. So digital packaging needs a real standard, and we really would have benefited greatly by having an interoperable open standard for that. And MPEG-7 could have been that. It's just there wasn't enough people interested in working on it, and every company wanted to do their own version of that. Do you so, think it's dead? Do I think it's dead. Uh, I don't know. I tried pretty hard. Our company spent a lot of, <laughs> you could look at the guys looking at you right now. We spent a lot of time in a couple of years. And we had, we had Warner Music Group. We had a lot of really, really talented people, some of the best people in the business working on it. And unfortunately, uh, it, was, it was hard to do. Um, uh, what I think was needed was an internet-connected, expandable package so that the music could grow and it could, you know, what the information that's in there could be expanded and changed and updated. And so now this is being done some degree for the, by the book guys, you know, the, for magazines. But we'll see if, see if, yeah, we'll see if it becomes a standard can go back and do music for us. This is a question for Neil from EMI. Can you talk a little bit about the process for clearing the tracks um, for the Open EMI initiative? And, and, and also, um, <laughs> have, have you placed restrictions on the types of services and apps that have come out of this initiative? Okay, so first one was about clearing licensing, um, but I'll come back to that because it kind of rolls into the whole process. So the process is that we've put a load of content out there through Echo Nest, and you as a developer can come and use that content, and you can you sign up for a key, and then you can play with it, and you can do what you like with it. Um, there's a shrink wrap license that lets you do that. Then when you've got an idea that you want to take to market, you come and speak to us about it, and what we'll do is we'll kind of help you hone your ideas. Uh, we'll take it to the artist and manager as, as appropriate. And then we'll help you get it to market by clearing the licensing. So what the licensing clearance means is if we think it's a good idea, we'll take on that task. So we'll clear it from our side of it, from the label, but we'll also go out and speak to the relevant publisher and any other rights holder. So you don't have to worry about that as a developer. That's what we do as our part of the deal. And then we'll take the app to market uh, once we've cleared licensing, we'll put our marketing weight behind it and uh, and get it into the app store and get it hopefully sold. And the whole point of it is is to stimulate innovation and get more apps out there using our content. It's another revenue stream for us. So we we all want to share in that. So so yeah, I think that answers both. We've got two that are about to launch. We only launched this thing in November, 
So uh, we're three, well, nearly four months in now. Um, we've got about six or eight that are in the pipeline, and we've got two that are going to be coming out within, I'll say six to eight weeks, but don't hold me to that. But that's, that's where we're at with those. More questions? Question us. Question authority. Hello. Uh, so uh, Andrew from from Zvuk, and the question is: uh, So what about the all the dynamic metadata? Because every company that opens up uh, any kind of musical API has like a growing huge amount uh, of uh, dynamic metadata. Like uh, they know uh, basically know everything about what happens globally uh, about music. What what kind of people from uh, every country, city, and uh, maybe even more precise uh, access. What kind? Uh, which kind of metadata is accessed from all of those uh, geographically specific points, like uh, fixed in time? You got time uh, timestamps and everything, and uh, specifically, what kind of metadata is being accessed? So that's that kind of dynamic metadata is probably uh, like uh, growing in value and uh, might soon be a lot more valuable than any kind of static metadata, but all uh, the companies, well, your, your companies and other companies are uh, comfortable with sharing and offering as a commercial product is uh, just some sort of arbitrary aggregates around that, and there's no standard around that, so is there any effort to standardize on dynamic metadata? Thank you. Um, well, I guess I could, it's that. So you're absolutely right. The reality is we only actually have the rights from our customers to aggregate and provide it in kind of an anonymous aggregate fashion. Um, I would love to have actual information to be able to, you know, say like you, you know, you need this, this stuff. But the reality is I think they, a lot of those companies work with us in such a way is that is that because there's privacy issues around that information. So we make it the business of our customers to kind of control what access we have the data. So yes, I know a lot of people are playing, I don't know, the new Madonna track, you know, in the you know, Soul Garden restaurant across the street here, but I don't know any of those people who they actually are. So I can't do an individual targeted service. But I do use that data to power all the work that we do about what we should actually work on. So that's very useful. And it does help us a lot to focus on what's important around the world, where I really need to understand very deeply what's going on in different regions, where I don't have necessarily the same kind of musical expertise in those regions that the data can kind of give me, as it were. So I do use it. Making a service available where you could actually have the data, well, you know, Spotify could do that for a certain number of your users, or maybe ideas I've had where you could create a private panel of users who don't mind that they're sharing their data in a deep level in, in exchange for that becoming useful in some new way. And that might be a new kind of API where that could become available. And that's how other industries have done this. So that might be something that could be done where people opt in essentially and say, look, I want to be part of this like detailed forensic study of what music's happening around the world when. And with that, we have new kind of applications. And then once we show people what the applications are, maybe then more people will be open to letting you do that. I'll, I'll, yeah, yeah <laughs> I'll add uh, just uh, my take on that. Um, so something we haven't exposed, but over the last uh, several years, we've been gaining all of the um, all the pricing information that's on a on a per event basis. So we don't know um, who um, sold the ticket, but we know the ticket was available, and we know 15 minutes later that that set of tickets wasn't available. So from that, we can garner a lot of we have hundreds of millions of records on on. Uh, sensitive pricing information that's time sensitive pricing information on the uh, on the general API front a lot of our clients use you know all of the reporting that's offered 
down to the you know, request level and the method level, the developer level, the consumer level. They have all access to all of that. Uh, again, we don't, we can't access that. That's that they're not our our clients, right? But imagine retail and big business has been doing this for a very long time with their APIs, and I can only imagine that um, it makes sense to accomplish some of the things that uh, Ty was talking about here around location, mood, playlist generation. That there's a lot of you're going to see a lot of innovation there. In fact, at the, the hackathon that we were just at this past weekend, um, there were a few, several apps that were built around automatic playlist generation. And in fact, to the earlier question about um, uh, harmonization across different services for playlists, I mean, guys were already doing it, right? They're exporting that stuff, uploading it to GitHub, and like just transferring it from service to service is almost as if you don't need to wait for these guys to normalize or to standardize. You could do it yourself, right? Okay, any other questions? Hi, Warren Stringer. I'm uh, a startup, I'm under the radar. I think someone on the floor. <laughs> um, so uh, let's say I wanted to uh, make available um, snippets of metadata, which is just somewhere within a track, uh, about a 30 second snippet of a track, but not actually the track itself. And I want to do about 10 million of these a month. Uh, and it's across different labels. Is there anyone who can help me with that? Uh, yes. And uh, would it be free? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, why don't you speak on that? I don't think free? free. Yeah. That You're sounds like an awesome free, use of resources, right? right? Someone just consuming your data for free. Is that, I mean, are, are you going to monetize eventually? Yeah? Well, it could be actually monetizing through uh, affiliation, uh, through recommendations. So you want to get 30 second clips, basically, to use in an app? Uh, or point to uh, 30 seconds within a full track. The retailers have that, so Amazon or iTunes will be able to give you those. But he wants to do lots of them. Well, I mean, they've got a limit, but as long as you, you, there's a sale opportunity for them there, then it's available. So no lawyers are going to come after me? Well, <laughs> I suggest you talk to the record company. This sounds like actually a perfect kind of thing for you to yeah. talk to him about. Yeah. Thank you. Okay, somebody else have a question? All right, thank you. Okay, go ahead. I'd just like to hear what uh, some of the APIs that are not your company's APIs that you think are pretty cool in the music space. Echo Nest. <laughs> uh, that's, a good, that's a good question. Um, I, I, you know, I think, I think the reality of that is, is that I'm really interested in live music, and so there's uh, a company called Vio, Vio Magic, which is, I guess, here in San Francisco, has like a thing that combines video clips from people at live concerts automatically. We have some technology like that too, and so I think letting users cooperatively work together without knowing each other in a live music context or an event context is a really interesting idea, and uh, so there's a few companies now with some of those ideas, and I think. The like kind of like live concert photo aggregation thing, where users shoot photos and get photos from other users. Hopefully, users are closer to the stage than I am. Uh, that that's a cool thing too. So I, I think those kind of applications, which there are many, um, are really exciting. Yeah, I mean Twitter, right? I mean the search.twitter.com. Maybe that just the Twitter search API. It's geo-based. There's no key authentication. I mean, you're, maybe you're, you're throttled to 100 an hour. You just get whitelisted if you have a friend at Twitter. I mean, there's wonderful, wonderful data just there uh, that you can collect. Um, 
I always talk about this one because it's one of my favorite APIs. I mean, Quova, now called New, uh, New Star IP Intelligence, IP info. I mean, how in the hell do you know where these people are? You don't assume you have that long every time, right? And everyone knows how, well, I hope you guys know how, how valuable location data is. Location and time tells you so much about these people, right? If you're talking about playlist generation, um, I mean, if they're at work, if they're at home, what their patterns are of listening, it's nuts, the things that you can come up with. You can profile on them. I mean, it's, 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 like, it's scary cool, right? To just between Twitter and Quova, or I'm sorry, Newstar. But uh, and if you haven't took a deeper dive into like stuff that Rovi does or Grace Note does around sentiment analysis of songs, that's nuts. I mean, who would have thought that I could find the most depressing songs with a search query, <laughs> right? Or the happy ones, you know, or angry ones. I mean, an ang that's incredible, right? So yeah. No, another one that many people you guys might know about is that cars and automobiles. We have a big business in car and automobile. They all have app platforms now, so you can actually develop a music application for Ford car or for BMW and they actually have data they provide from the car to the apps so you can get the speed of the car the location of the car yes. you can't like shift the gears or you know, <laughs> stuff like that but upgrade the brakes or, but but the reality is is that there's a lot of really interesting you know applications just even for that you know so you know you could have a playlisting application that you know tries to you know match what you're doing when you're driving or you could have something that tries to match the weather outside with where you're driving to and so those are all new things it's just recent that those platforms became available, you can just go to any of the car company websites and read about them. A cool API that I um, love, it's called Sonic Notify, and um, it sends like a high frequency pitch to your phone, uh, like it's a content management system, but you know, you know, think of Shazam, you have to push a button, it listens. This is just, it's sending noises to your phone, your phone listens. So I see a lot of cool stuff like in the live event space with APIs like that. Yeah, I think I think there's massive opportunity there for people to do cool stuff, like letting the fans control the lighting or letting the fans and the audience control the cameras on stage or any of those kind of things. I think are there's these apps coming out like um, Rockbot, TuneTug. There, you go to the party, you got the whole list of songs, and you know you create the playlist there, like really interactive. All right. There's also the avoidance spots, which you can like send your friends to the wrong place so they don't follow you. <laughs> it's, a really, it's really cool, actually. It's like a thing that fake checks in to Facebook in the wrong places. <laughs> so uh, social influence data, I mean, I would imagine a lot of you guys that are building apps, you're consuming them now, you're OAuthing your Facebook or Twitter account. Um, you know, companies like Clout have, it's not just about the integer score number they give you, it's about they tell you what, they're, what you're influential on. Right topics and who they influence. So in terms of uh, you know the the tree of information that goes about who I influence and who influences me, there's valuable data there too. Um, I mean, totally on a tangent here, but I'm like I build an app called Housing Cloud that gives like cloud scores to neighborhoods. So I can only imagine like I could give like cloud scores to neighborhoods associated with music that's listened to there. I mean, it's it's totally crazy. Doesn't seem to make sense, but really it kind of does, right? So taking disparate things outside of this space too. Um, yeah, there's, I got a boatload of examples in my brain. Cool. Sure. Does all your data play into your advertising monetization strategies? I'd love to have an advertising monetization strategy. <laughs> I haven't figured out how to do it yet. Uh, there's a lot of unique user 
you know, trends. Yeah, I mean, I actually, that's not entirely true. The, the, the in the video space, there's more opportunity for this because there's more advertising that's working with video. That's I think more successful. Mobile space has been really hard. You guys have noticed, like Facebook just said they're not making any money from mobile ads, really, and. Uh, so monetizing in the handset space is tough, you know, and the screen's so small, like, you know, I don't really want a lot of stuff on there advertising to me. Um, the, the area that I think, like you were saying, understanding people's tastes and using mu music as an indicator of that, maybe in combination with some other stuff, that is really important because I think that people then m maybe can be marketed to in a way that they would actually accept, which is, the, I think, the key and not in the way which annoys them based upon what they like to do, you know, where they, where they are. And not just marketing music to them, marketing other things. So I do think, I think that idea of what we call it taste printing or these kind of things, that these things in the future I think will become uh, hopefully acceptable and okay and hopefully be used in the right way, but basically, uh, yeah, it, it would be great for me to go to some place, like a pizza place, and have the music inside the pizza place adapt to what I like without me doing anything, because it's read my taste print and go, hey, this guy likes this, and the three people in the corner, they like this, and the guy behind the counter likes this, so now this is what we're going to play. And so something like that, I think, could be very interesting. And that would make it a more pleasing pizza place, I guess, if I went there. So. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> that would be good. That'd be great. So we should just have a soundtrack that follows us around. Isn't that from Family Guy? That's the dream. Right. It's a dream. Yeah. It's a dream. I gotta tell you, it's you know, and we do a lot of work with the car guys, and it's their goal to get what they call whole family listening and to go on the car, like so you don't have like your teenage kids slumped in the back with a hoodie on, with the headphones in his ear, like they actually like take their headphones out and like interact with you. Oh my God, that would be terrible. Um, so the idea essentially is the only way we could do that is if they can hear music that they like and they can occasionally push the limits with the parents of music the parents don't really absolutely like, but is acceptable enough that they listen to it. So it's a really fine balance to try to come up with something that can build a system that lets your teenage kid annoy you a little for the sake of being able to interact with them. That's powerful. It's powerful stuff. Bonding. Powerful stuff. Yeah. Of course, I'm going to annoy him a little, too. So. <laughs> Got about eight or nine minutes, guys. Any more questions? We're just enthralled. <laughs> We're enthralled. <laughs> It speaks a bit to some of the points already made, but in the content kind of text articles kind of world, I think a lot of the big media brands are very concerned about disintermediation. That means basically they're losing contact with the actual reader in the sense you've got Google, Amazon, Apple, and potentially Facebook who are kind of, they're the audience and they, they know who the audience is in a very detailed way. And the, the content producers and those brands are really kind of just funneling the content in. And that makes it much more difficult for them to advertise to those people and so forth. I think in music, it seems there's a bit more openness and a bit more diversity. But could you kind of speak to how you see that working and how you see APIs maybe helping or hindering that, that process and keeping connection with the user? Well, a lot of this I go, I would go back to the thing I said before. You know, the content creators, you know, had more control about the delivery mechanism for their content maybe in the past. And an example of this would be in the movie industry. If you look at Blu-ray discs, it's a complete package. You get the movie, you got the network connectivity, you've got the interactivity. Everything that happens on that disc from the second it starts up is in the control of the content provider, including the network connectivity. That took 10 years of work to make the Blu-ray. It was a very complicated standard, and that's what everyone uses to make movies on discs. 
There's no equivalent of that for digital. And there's no equivalent of that for digital for music or movies. So now what happens is the content provider ships somebody a file and says, you play it. And that just totally took them out of the loop of all the connectivity and all the data about what the people were doing or even having people really register. So instead, we're like on the internet running a contest like, hey, you know, give me your email so that you can get like a promotion to try to get the information. That's what's left. So I think had more time been invested in creating advanced network delivered containers and packages, that could have been avoided. And movie industry is going through it right now. TV industry maybe next. Magazine business, they seem to be doing it right. They got more rich containers. They got ads in there. New York Times app, it's got all that stuff in there. It's pretty good. But, but to be honest, I, I mean, to say it, the print guys are ahead. What's going on? Speaking as a label, though, we, we get a lot more data now than we ever did. I mean, we might have known that we sold a number of records from Virgin Megasoles, but we didn't know who, who was buying those or where they lived or what they were doing with them. Whereas we're getting data from Spotify or someone like that, mm -hmm. we kind of get a lot, a lot richer data set. And it's real so time, I, right? You get it like yeah, well. exactly. So I think. Um, I don't think it's as bad as, as, as you actually make out in terms of, I think even though there's someone in the middle, as long as you've got a relationship with that person in the middle, then you, you get it, you're actually getting more data than, than you were before. Right. At, um, you know, I guess I said at the beginning, we're data centric, so we're in the middle of, of all of these APIs that come at us and they're, they're not optimized for, in their uh, user flows of creating events, um, for um, getting rid of mismatches on artist names and venue names. So we clean all of that and deliver that. So the, the context of knowing who someone likes and where they are is kind of the core to, to how we deliver value to uh, the end users. So we've got a bunch of APIs for all kinds of different things from streaming to lyrics to metadata. What APIs don't we have yet that, we th that would be really cool in terms of building new kinds of apps or offering uh, new kinds of services to labels or artists? Uh. We don't have cultural APIs. We don't have photographs. Photographs are key. Like when you play music on your flat screen TV, what do you look at? You look at the front of the album cover, and you look at the front of the album cover, and you look at the front of the album cover. It would be nice if I could have like a photo. So we're adding those things to our database. Robbie has them too. And, and you can get those from Yeah, the problem is the photographic community has focused on maybe licensing for advertising maybe as the core business, not so much for combining their photographs yet with digital services that are music. So hopefully the future photographs will become available much broader sense. You should be able to have an amazing stream of great photos and just don't have it. I think developers are going to want to, just to go back to the streaming part, it's not so much that the, there's not there's not data there that they want, it's theirs. It's that like this guy on the ground, he just wants to consume it for free. So how do you get, how do I embed that streaming RDO song or just the player into an app and not violate terms of service, right? I want to, I mean, because, man, music can make my app, even like a photo app, silly, right? But I mean, I don't use the native app anymore on my iPhone to take pictures, I use Camera Plus. Well, I may not want to use the RDO player because there's something better about another player, like, you know, or play a game embedding, instead of you know playing a Zynga game and listening to a bunch of MIDI music, I might want to listen to something on RDO, but how do I do that without running into his problem over there, right? In a way that you make your cut, the artist gets their cut, and the developer's just happy. You know, I think that that's kind of, if I, being a developer myself, I mean, that's my big question, is like, man, I could build a kick-ass app and embed some great experience and emotions into this thing with music, but how do I do it without getting busted, right? So, I mean, I guess that's your question to answer, yeah, or Andrew's yeah. question to answer, I don't, I don't know, or, or Neil over there. There's a couple good fingerprinting APIs. 
Yeah. Grace Note has a pretty good one. We have a good one. The, the reality is, I think the real problem is there needs to be a business model. I mean, that the problem is ultimately you can make a free app and put it out there for free and you can do it for fun and that's a cool thing and it can really prove something because free definitely works. People really like free things. The problem is once you try to switch to commercial, then you really have to figure out how to charge some percentage of those people something or some advertising thing and there's a lot of challenges in the marketplace of making that jump, even for big companies. You know, there are a lot of big companies seeming $100 million of funding that have struggled to figure out how to convert to a, a real business. But ultimately, at the end of the day, the photographer or the musician or somebody has to actually get paid a little. So sure. the reality is, you know, it can't be free for everyone all the time. And so that that's a tough one. You know? but, but looping in the fact that if I was an RDO or, or a Spotify subscriber and I bundled in that live stream to my app, they are paying for that service, right? Right. So it's not, I mean, but if well, I charge 99 cents for my app, I mean, right. and then I'm, you know. But, but the thing about that, that, is, that is that they, they you know, so that you're subscribed to their system, but, you know, if you want a rich ecosystem with lots of guys that have these kind of services, then you can't have one guy that offers everything. Sure. <laughs> and everything's bundled into his one thing. Oh, wait, that's called Facebook. Uh, uh, so anyways, the reality is, is that that, that is a, uh, that's the problem, which is that, to try to create a level playing field, there's restrictions put on what people do. And record companies do it, but all content guys do it. And it's not just, it's just trying to figure out how to make some kind of playing field where the free startup guys can still create their cool things and the guys who have to make a business can still have a business. It's yeah. extremely difficult. The internet made everything really accessible, but didn't make, make business any simpler. Mm -hmm. All right, guys, we're about out of time. Thank you so much for hanging out with us. Yeah, it's thank a good you chat. Guys. Thanks very much. Oh, cool. Oh, sure.